0: You may be seated. Our Old Testament reading this morning is going to be Psalm 100. We just sang an Isaac Watts hymn that's based upon this great psalm. Then our New Testament reading will be found in Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 1 through 9. That will be our New Testament reading and our text for this morning's sermon. So first of all, from the Old Book, or the Old Testament, Psalm 100, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And His faithfulness to all generations. And then from the New Testament, Philippians 4 beginning with verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat, Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women, who have labored side by side with me and the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers But you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for both the reading and the hearing of your word, which is a means of grace that you've given to your church. Holy Spirit, you are at work even as we hear hear your word read, illumining your word to our hearts, making application of it to our lives. Extraordinary blessing it is. And yet, Lord, you have also commissioned the preaching and the heralding of your word You call men to this ministry. You equip them and gift them. You set them apart through the laying hands, the hands of the presbytery unto this work of the ministry of the word and sacrament. Because we believe, as our forefathers did, that it's especially the preaching of the word that's made effectual unto salvation. We believe that you edify and strengthen and grow your people through hearing your word proclaimed and so lord your servant stands before you as always in need of the unction and the strength of the holy spirit to proclaim your word with clarity and with power and to hold forth the gospel of the lord jesus christ to people whose ears are eager to hear and hearts to believe and to embrace your word. Lord, grant this prayer. Your servant prays in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for our visitors, the people who come here on a regular basis realize we're we're drawing to the end of a series of sermons. I've been preaching through the book of Philippians. Typically, I'm here two Lord's Days a month, the first and third Lord's Day. So we've been working our way through this epistle. It's been a joy for me. I hope it has for those who have been here for for these particular studies. Um, sometimes I think, well, I need to find something that's particularly applicable to to church planting and home missions. And then I get into any book of the Bible anywhere, and it always is. It's always applicable to where we find ourselves, the Word of God is, and principles are there to be heard. Well, as we come to this text before us, what we have is um, something that's a little difficult to do in terms of putting it in sermon form. We have a series of exhortations, one that follows right after the other. Almost in staccato form, not quite the degree that you see in other of Paul's epistles, like First Thessalonians. Sometimes little three-letter word, two-letter word exhortations, one that follows upon the other, and and sometimes it's hard to see is there is there a connection in thought between these these uh, exhortations as they come, and uh, and I've sought before to try to do that with these ending passages of epistles. Well, how do I arrange them? And how do I show common themes between the exhortations? I just gave up on doing that kind of thing. We're going to take them seriatum. The first that we see in verse 1 is really the main overarching theme, but then a series of exhortations that follow the call to stand firm. So we're just going to walk our way through this text Verse by verse, each exhortation will be a subpoint of of the sermon. but Paul begins by saying, "Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for my joy and crown and we've seen this throughout this epistle. The warmth of this epistle, the personal character of this epistle, the relationship that Paul enjoyed with the church at Philippi, seems almost unrivaled in terms of the mutual support that you see. Uh, between them, it's, it makes for a very warm and rich epistle uh, as we read it, and you can see that reflected in these words: "Whom I love and long for, I love you. I long for. I long to be with you again. I long to see your faces again. My joy and crown, because this is the fruit of his labors and the preaching of the gospel." And the establishing of the word of God in Philippi, the establishing of this church, he can see the fruit of his labors. And that's his crown. That's his reward. The fruit of his labor seen in the transformed lives of the people that are there in, in Philippi. And this brings him great joy. This love that he sees in them, Christ that he sees in them. And then he says... Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. That's the overarching command, stand firm. You see the same thing in Ephesians in light of the, the battle that's waging with, with principalities and powers, spiritual forces in the heavenly places. And that spiritual battle, what does Paul say over and over again? Stand, stand, stand firm as he gives us the whole armor of God. He's saying it again to the to the church at Philippi, to these brothers and sisters in Christ, stand firm thus in the Lord. And we have to stand firm in difficult and trying days. We are the church that's here on earth. In theology, we call the church on earth the church militant. What is behind that is the, the recognition that the Christian life and the life and ministry of the church is embattled it's embattled and not simply with the world but with spiritual forces in the heavenly places themselves we live our lives now in a place of battle and yet in the midst of this we must stand firm in the lord and and then the following exhortations are different ways in which we are to stand firm and i think it's interesting that he begins by talking about unity in the church That's where he begins. This is not uncommon in Paul either. When he turns to from what we call the indicative or who we are in Christ Jesus to the imperative, how then shall we live? That he starts with unity in the church. It's that important. And in this case, it's unity between two individuals in the church. These aren't just general disagreements between different factions within the church as you see perhaps, in, in, in the Corinthian church. But no, here are two ladies. They're named. I mean, he calls them out. He he lists their names. Of course, everybody in the church must be fully aware of what's going on between Yodia and, and Syntyche. But something has happened in their relationship. It's disrupted their relationship. You know, some have questioned that maybe they were... They're certainly sisters in the Lord. We see that that their names are written in the book of life. Paul tells us that. But some have wondered if they may have been sisters by blood in the church. And maybe Clement's a brother who's mentioned here. But we don't know. That's conjecture. That's speculation. But these are two ladies who have labored side by side with Paul and with Clement in the gospel. These are two ladies who along with Clement, their names are written in the book of life. These are believers, but something has happened that's caused a rupture in their relationship. And it's evidently it's so noted in the church that Paul has no issue whatsoever in a a letter that he's written to a group of people to call them out by name. And what he's saying is this needs to be resolved. This cannot exist in the life of the church. You two people need to come together, and then he calls upon this this one that uh, in the uh, as we read it in the ESV is called <clears throat> true companion. Uh, literally, it can be translated yoke fellow. Some have wondered if his name is actually Syzygus, which is translated yoke fellow or true companion. Maybe it shouldn't be translated at all, but but if you translate, if it is his proper name, boy, is it fitting in God's providence. A yoke fellow, one that brings together two that are separate, maybe pulling against each other, and yet brings them in line as the yoke is put upon the oxen. That's the picture that you get here. Joining together, what needs to be joined together and not apart That's the call of this individual, whether his name is Sisychus or whether he's being titled that by the apostle Paul, when he's saying, Work with these two ladies that have labored with me in the gospel along with Clement. These are women of great significance in Paul's life and in the ministry there in Philippi. And yet they're at odds with each other. And Paul's saying This needs to be fixed. The church cannot bear disunity. And yet, we find it all the time in the church. I dare say that there's not anyone in this room that has not, to some extent, in some place, maybe not some of the youngest of you, Anybody that's a little bit older that has experienced disunity in the life of church. Why? It's Satan's favorite tool. Whatever he can do to divide brother from brother or sister from sister or brother from sister, he is going to do. He will use God's people. He will use good and godly people. And because hurt takes place, sometimes we don't want it to be reconciled. Paul is saying here, you need to be reconciled. And we understand why. If you think about Jesus' high priestly prayer, the prayer that he prayed the night that he was betrayed, he prays for the disciples who are there with him. But then in the midst of that prayer, he stops and he starts praying for you. That is, for those who will believe from what they testify, he starts praying for you, for us, for the church, throughout the ages, for this church, or for the church in Stanton, since we have a lot of people for the church in Stanton. What does he pray? Lord, let them be one, as you and I are one, that the world would know that you sent me into the world. Why? Because Jesus came to reconcile the world to himself and he uses the witness of his people and proclaiming reconciliation, a ministry of reconciliation and why will the world believe your message about reconciliation to God when you can't be reconciled to each other? You see how important it is? Get it done. Fix it. Let me tell you what I see happening in our churches. There's this little passage called Matthew 18. It's very, very important. It's instructions that Jesus himself gives us in how disputes are to be handled in the life of the church. If your brother offends you, you are to go to your brother and seek to confront them that you can be. If he will not hear you, what? Then you take a witness with you. If he'll not hear you in the witness, then what do you do? You bring it before the church. This is the steps that are taken, actually, in church discipline. They're very, very important. I'm going to say something that sounds incredibly unorthodox. There are times when I've said to people, I don't care what Matthew 18 says. And I care very much what Matthew 18 says. It's important to follow. But people use it as a billy club to keep from engaging and being reconciled with each other. Well, they didn't follow Matthew 18. No, they went directly to the session. How dare they not follow Matthew 18? How dare they go directly to the session? I'm not going to talk to them. They didn't follow Matthew 18. And I'll say, I don't care. I do. They should have. I told them to sometimes. They didn't. But here's the issue. You've offended your brother or your sister. Don't hide behind Matthew 18 and use it as a billy club. But the fact that you offended your brother or your sister has come to your attention. Go be reconciled to your brother and your sister. You see, that's what's at heart of it. Not, did we follow and check off every box the proper procedure? Although proper procedures are of great importance, and Jesus gives them to, them, to us, and we're to follow them. But do you understand what I'm talking about? the issue is two are unresolved in their differences, and what it is that's divided them. And what we do in our sin in that is we justify ourselves, I don't have to think about how I offended my brother or my sister because they offended me. They didn't follow Jesus' express commandments to come to me directly. They should have come to me. They should have. They didn't. But what has come to your attention is you've sinned against your brother. Seek reconciliation. Repent where you need to repent. Matthew 18 is not given... Us in order to function in the way I see it functioning all the time, church. It's important. <laughs> this is very, very important. But the spirit of the matter is be reconciled to your brother and to your sister in Christ. If a man who offends someone, even inadvertently, If they are a humble man or a humble woman and it comes to their attention, the first thing that they're going to do is they are not going to jump to, well, did they follow Matthew 18? Did they follow all the right procedure? Their heart's going to be stricken that they've offended their brother or their sister. What do I need to do to make amends and to be reconciled? Here we have these two ladies. We don't know what happened we don't know which one of them's right. I tell you what I've experienced in my years in the ministry in the church. What what I've experienced is that when there's a breakdown, when you get down underneath it, there's usually plenty of sin to go around on all sides. Now that doesn't mean that one may be the greater sinner and the greater offender in it. There's always plenty of sin to go around. And if you are quick to confess yours, even if it's a small part, I have seen that diffuse situations and the one that committed the greater sin, their hearts softened and willing to be reconciled. We don't know what happened with these two ladies. We know that it's unresolved. Evidently, the church knew about it. Paul is calling for help, but in essence, he's saying, get it done. Get it done. What happens oftentimes is these things are neglected. A root of bitterness begins to sprout up. People begin to side with this one and then these side with that one. And the division grows, and the witness of the church is lost. And we can't have it. What I love about where we are right now, and I, I hesitate to say this, <laughs> is that we don't have these things in this church right now. We don't have any yodia, sanctity kinds of divisions in this church. Uh, There's a spirit of unity that's palpable. You can taste it when you come in the room. It's a wonderful thing. The reason why I say I hesitate to say that is what's going to happen next week or next month or next year. Satan will never leave us alone. He will seek to divide you from each other to say no you got to say no and don't pull out your pedigree you say, well I've been a minister I was a deacon or I've taught Sunday school or all these kind of things like this Yodi and Sanctity worked hand in hand in the gospel alongside the apostle Paul and he is incredibly appreciative for those labors he's saying get this done get this done Secondly, the second exhortation is one that we saw early in the book. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. I told you early on, this is a central theme of this letter. I also told you the first time we saw this exhortation to rejoice, it struck me as odd. How can you tell somebody to be joyful? You can tell them. But but how can you command them to be joyful? You can command them to do the things that will lead to true joy. But Paul actually exhorts us to rejoice in the Lord always. And, And we need to recognize he has a right to do this. He has a right to exhort us unto this joy. If you consider what we've seen throughout this epistle, his circumstances, he's in prison. He's appealed to Caesar. His hearing is forthcoming. It's not come yet. He doesn't know what the result will be. He thinks he knows, but he's not certain. He may lose his head. He is confined under house arrest. He has difficult circumstances. He finds himself in. Everything he once had, he has no more. It's gone. He didn't care. He has Jesus. We've already seen that in this epistle. And he's joyful in the midst of his imprisonment. And this isn't the first time. Remember when in Philippi itself, when when he and Silas and others are thrown into the prison in Philippi, when he first gets there, and before the earthquake comes, it's in the middle of the night, what are they doing? They're singing psalms to God. That's what they're doing, they're rejoicing. When they're sitting in a dungeon, probably it's rat infested. Why are they rejoicing? You see, what we're going to see as we work through these things is Paul can issue these exhortations because he's living them himself. He's living them himself. Rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice rejoice regardless of the circumstances why well think about what you have in christ jesus you're a sinner who has offended a holy god you're a sinner who deserves the just judgment of eternal perdition because of your sin your sins have been forgiven you because the lord jesus christ died on the cross in your place and you will have eternity with God. Your names are written in the book of life. That's the reason to rejoice. And what we saw when we introduced joy earlier in this epistle, this is not the joy of mirth or the joy or of even happiness. The joy that comes with the second glass of wine when you're fellowshipping with your brothers and sisters. Now this is something that's far deeper this is a joy that's rooted and grounded in your union with Christ Jesus that circumstances cannot rob you of. That's what Paul is talking about. That's what in God's providence in Paul, he is exemplifying for us. And I told you early on, we have to be careful. to We don't read the Bible from... A, a moralistic standpoint of be like Paul or be like Daniel or be like Peter. You don't always want to be like Paul or Daniel or Peter. But Paul tells us again and again, and he does in this text as well, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Those are the words exactly that he used to the Corinthians. He's used similar words in this epistle already. Yes, this brother is an example to the Philippians and to us. About what it looks like to obey these commands, these exhortations that he's writing to them right now. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. The next one, verse five let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That seems a bit odd, just stuck in there, doesn't it? Be reasonable. Be reasonable. You know, use common sense. And In every encounter that you have, be reasonable. Sometimes a situation will occur, going back to the two ladies that we had before, where an offense will come. Someone will offend you. Is your response to that a reasonable response, or do you blow it all out of proportion? Because your feelings were hurt. Because it impacted your own pride or or your own self-esteem. Now, Paul is saying, have a clear head. Think reasonably about things. Yes, even things that might divide us, but, but other matters as well. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That is, live and demonstrate. You think deliberately. You live sober-mindedly. You think things through. And you communicate it that way. This is part of the fruit of the Spirit. That your reasonably be known to everyone. Then he says, the Lord is at hand. This seems to go with the exhortation that follows. The question that we have, is he talking about the the return of Christ? The Lord is at hand. His coming is at hand. Uh, Perhaps his coming is at hand. People say, well, it's been 2,000 years. No, it's only been two days. You have to the way God marks time. It's only been two days Since Jesus said he's coming back. Because a thousand years are like a day to the Lord. Isn't that what the Bible says? If I'm doing my arithmetic right, then it's been been two days. We are in the last days. The Lord's return is imminent. And I don't mean to go on Facebook and read about the Ukraine and Russia and where Russia is found in the book of Ezekiel and all that kind of stuff that's blowing up the, the internet right now as it does every time there's some catastrophe like we see taking place in, in the world around us. But the Lord Jesus Christ is returning. He's coming in the clouds of glory. But it also can mean the Lord is at hand because he told us he would be at hand. He said when he gave the Great Commission to to these Handful of people, eleven people, he said, Okay, I'm going to go to the Father. Here's your job. Go win the world. <laughs> that, that's what he told them. But he also told them, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is here. And you need to realize that right now. The Lord is here. He is here now. Yes. The Lord Jesus is coming again visibly in the clouds of glory at the end of this age. But he is here now. He has promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us. The Lord is at hand. And this is why I think it goes with the exhortation that follows. It says, do not be anxious about anything. Now, if you have felt safe through these exhortations we've had so far and said, well, I've done a pretty good job with these. There's not anybody I'm really mad at right now. i'm a pretty joyful person i i think i think pretty reasonably and people would consider me a reasonable person um is paul meddling yet when he says don't be anxious about anything any worriers in the room any of you especially when you turn on the news Or when it just seems like things are falling apart around you in your own personal life and you have no control over it whatsoever? I love my mother-in-law. But I told her one time, your middle name is worry. She's a godly woman, she is. But she thinks it's her job <laughs> to, to worry about everybody in the family, including me. Your, your middle name is worry. Anybody here whose middle name is worry? Worry? Why are people looking down? You know, <laughs> It is easy for us to become anxious. When we become anxious, what are we forgetting? The Lord is at hand. He's here. And He's in control. And He has His purposes, even when everything's falling apart, that are for our good because He loves us. This is the truth of who our God is. How much does he love you? He sent his son who died on the cross for you. That's how much he loves you. Everything that comes from his hand is for your your spiritual good, for your growth in grace, for your betterment before him. Everything. Everything. And sometimes it's hard for us to hear that. Especially in the midst of when it's overwhelming. But here's the exhortation The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but there's something you are to do. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with giving, let your requests be known to God. Don't worry, pray. You hear? Don't worry. That's a negative exhortation or command. It's telling you not to do something, but there's something he's commanding you to do, and that's to pray. Pray about everything. He says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication. Yes, sometimes prayer is down on your knees in supplication before God. This is not saying that things that come into your life don't matter or not significant or don't hurt and hurt terribly with prayer and supplication, listen, with thanksgiving. Do you hear that? Praying with thanksgiving already in your heart. Why? Why can you be thankful? Because the Lord is with you. And the Lord who is at hand is the Lord who loves you. And He can't love you more than He loves you now, than He's always loved you. This notion, if I'm a little bit better, if I I improve myself a little bit more, if I'm a little bit more obedient, if I'm a little bit less sinful, maybe God will love me more. Get that out of your head. He can't love you more than he loves you. While you are a sinner, Christ died for you. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's the result. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God will give you in the midst of your anxiety when you get on your knees and pray to the God who is at hand with thanksgiving, the God who loves you. The fruit of that will be a peace the world cannot understand. It'll be a peace you can't understand yourself. It's putting the things in the proper perspective and understanding them in light of God's sovereign work in your life for your betterment and for your good. It's resting in those truths that you know. And the result of that is a subjective sense of peace in your heart that's inexplicable. And you've seen it in people's lives. You've seen it. I don't know that I've used this illustration with you guys before, but there's a similarity to what you see with Paul, especially at, at Philippi. Our friend Zacharias Veliasus, I, I know that some of you know Zeki. He's preached at RPC. I don't know that he's ever preached in, uh, in Stanton or not, from Eritrea. Zeki was arrested on multiple occasions. Uh, because he was a Christian and a minister of the gospel in, in a nation that had been taken over by a communist regime that shut down the church. So they met underground. And he was, he tells a testimony of one time when he was in prison, he was being beaten, he was being tortured. And he almost despaired of life itself. And almost, you know, why am I going through this, Lord? And then he began to hear his brothers and sisters in Christ who had been arrested with him singing praises to God and other cells around him. And a peace that passes all understanding just filled his heart and soul in that moment. And if you know Zeke now, you can see the fruit of that suffering and persecution that he endured. For the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a very, very dear brother in the Lord. A peace which surpasses all understanding. Seasoned saints who face imminent death with joy. It's just like we heard in the Sunday school lesson this morning that's an apologetic if walking in purity in an impure world is apologetic, he also said joy, rejoicing in the Lord is an apologetic in this world that's falling apart around us. You often, I often wonder, what was Paul's experience when he was Saul when Stephen was being stoned? What happened? This was at his approval. They laid their cloaks at his feet as they took up stones to stone Stephen. What did Stephen do? He prayed for their forgiveness, (laughs) just like Jesus did. But he looked up in heaven, and his eyes were open to see heaven, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Someone said one time, why was Jesus standing? In every other picture in the Bible that we see of Jesus in the heavenly realms he's seated at the right hand of God that is his work is accomplished it's done now he sits and he reigns why was he standing it's conjecture but was it to receive Stephen to himself come on Stephen it's your time to come to me what a testimony did Saul remember it when He met Jesus on the road to Damascus. I don't know. But I know it was a testimony. A peace that surpasses understanding as the stones they hurt are hitting him, knocking him down, breaking his bones before knocking him unconscious and killing him. See, only... Christ Jesus can do that. And then he says, finally, though he's not quite done. Usually when the preacher says, finally, you think, okay, finally to the last point or sub-point of the sermon. Paul's not quite done. There's another text that follows this one. And actually there's another exhortation at the end of this one. But he says, finally, brothers... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This is what you need to be thinking about. These things. Beyond your circumstances and situations beyond the conflict that's in the world right now. And, and that conflict is real. And I love this about the Sunday school. There's a good Sunday school lesson again this morning. He's knocked it out of the park the last two times I've been here in, in those lectures. It's that the purity is not to run and hide in the cave, but we're to go right back into the world. This isn't talking about escapism from this world. It's not it's just grinning and bear it until Jesus comes back in the clouds of glory. No, we're to engage this world with this gospel message. But what are we thinking about? What are we meditating on? Are our eyes to be focused upon the things that are in this world that are transient and temporary and going away? Are upon those things which are good and glorious and enduring to focus our attention upon Christ himself. This is what Paul is telling us in, in, in this exhortation. I think of it, an illustration of this, I think, is the Lord's Day. It, when people come to the Reformed faith and they embrace God's sovereignty and salvation, and oftentimes, not too far down the line is they come across the Lord's Day, the Sabbath. Especially if they fall in love with the Westminster Confession of Faith, they come to the chapter on, on the Sabbath and they say, I want to be faithful to the Lord in the Sabbath. And how do they do it? They say, well, I'm not going to do this. 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 And they come up with this checklist of things I'm not going to do. And then every Sunday they come and they check it out. Well, I didn't do this, 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 and didn't do this. I kept the Sabbath. Maybe you did and maybe you didn't. (laughs) Keeping the Sabbath is delighting in the Lord on the day that he has given to us, that is giving us To those things that he gives us to do on the Sabbath. Which is worship. And Lord willing one day we will be back where you will be able to worship here both morning and evening. Bookend the day. Deeds of mercy. That Pete prayed about in the prayer this morning. What a wonderful day to visit the nursing home. Or people in the hospital fellowship to have people over in hospitality to spend the day with them talking with the children about well, what did we learn from the sermon this morning on Sunday afternoons if you're delighting in all of the things that God commands us to do on the Lord's day you get to the end of the day and you realize well, I didn't have to go down my checklist I don't have time for any of those things Somebody says, who won the ball game? What ball game? <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean what, what ball game? We don't have time to think about a ball game. Because the Lord gave us this day to give ourselves to these things which are much better than the things that are perfectly good on Saturday. Like going to the ball game or to the rodeo. <laughs> There's not anything wrong with going to Was it a rodeo? Is that what it was? Or something like a rodeo? Of going to a rodeo. It's a fun thing to do. I'm not saying don't be into sports or any of these kind of things. But what do we do when we keep the Lord's Day? We are recognizing God did this to help us keep our focus upon him. He gave us this day where we can rest from our ordinary labors to give ourselves to all of these wonderful things that he gives us to do so that things that are good and proper on other days, we're not going to do those on those days because we don't have time to do those on these other days. And it teaches us then, okay, how do I live Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday as a steward of the time that he's given me? When I'm doing my ordinary labors and even recreations, it's the way we focus ourselves, and the Lord's Day helps us focus on the very things Paul is saying to think about in this text. Of those things which are above, those things which are better, that are transcendent. It's 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 significant to realize how this impacts your life when you obey this simple exhortation that comes from the apostle Paul. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there be any excellence, if there be anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And then he comes back to that exhortation which makes me shake in my boots. I've already confessed it. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. He says, imitate me. And I told you it makes me shake in my boots because as a leader in Christ's church, as a minister of the gospel, as an elder in Christ's church... Paul's not the only one who should give this exhortation, but I should say to you, imitate me. And there are times I don't want you to imitate me. (laughs) But I'm responsible before God to live in such a way to say, what you've seen in me do these things. Moms and dads, you have that relationship with your children. And they see the good, the bad, and the ugly. When they see the ugly, what you need to teach them is how you need the gospel just like they do and how Christ forgives sins. And you say, imitate me by falling on your knees before God and resting in his work on your back. Same thing with me. When I screw up, I've got to be the first one, whether you follow Matthew 18 or not, (laughs) I've got to be the first one to say, brother, sister, I am so sorry that I offended you. That's living out the gospel. Paul says, practice these things that you've seen in me. Exhortations. Well, I thought, the gospel is about the indicative. It's not about how we live. No, it's about both. It's about what you believe because what you believe impacts the way you live. But the power to live it is that very gospel. It's not in you. It's in your union with him. And he's the one that gives us the power and the joy to obey his commands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for those glorious indicatives, those declarations of truth about the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. And our standing and status is justified before you by grace through faith alone and that we are united with the risen living lord jesus through the person of the holy spirit who indwells us we love all of these wonderful truths of scripture the father we pray that by recognizing who and what we who we are and what we have in you you will stir our hearts to joyfully obey your commands, both these in this text and those throughout the scriptures. For your law is good and sweeter than the honey from the honeycomb and more to be desired than gold, yea, much fine gold. Lord, teach us these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.